different perspective on today's most important topics and trends, it's Mindfully Speaking with Harry Wilkinson. Yes, and welcome once again to another episode of Mindfully Speaking with me. I'm Harry Wilkinson, and uh, I welcome you and ask you the same question I ask uh, at the top of this show every time. So, how are you feeling about the world? Are you, um, are you feeling okay? Are you maybe getting a little stressed out by uh, all of the uh, bombardment of uh, news stories and information that's spun from one direction or another, screamed at you from ever-proliferating media platforms? Is that starting to stress you out a bit? Um, it's understandable. I think uh, all of us are dealing with that uh, in the best way that we can, and the way that I'm dealing with it is by doing the show and offering this space. This is a space to come for a mindful spin on some of the most important events uh, of the week, month, year even, and taking a deep dive into some of these and finding ways to to look at what's going on in a way that nourishes your soul instead of leaving you sort of feeling drained and, and helpless and overwhelmed. That's what I'm here for. Um, I do it because I need it, and if I need it, I'm sure a lot of people uh, need it as well. Uh, so if you're new to the show, or maybe you just need a refresher, uh, sometimes I need a refresher too, uh, what exactly do I mean when I'm talking about mindfulness, and how does that have anything to do with um, the state of affairs in the world um, with the uh, news media coverage uh, and all of those things that seem to be uh, stressing us out, pulling us apart, um, uh, maybe even uh, uh, dividing us. Many believe that that's what's going on, that we are... Um, so divided uh, and that uh, media plays upon that there's there's good evidence to suggest there's truth to that idea but what is mindfulness and how can we use it in approaching this so the straightforward definition of it is uh, mindfulness is fully attending to what's happening to what you're doing to the space you're moving but without judgment and by uh, lack of I don't mean lack of judgment uh, what I mean is a space where you observe without uh, being triggered uh, often we get so busy with our thoughts, our minds take flight when we hear certain uh, 
things being presented and certain uh, concepts, certain issues push our buttons and we start to lose touch with with who we are and we start to get involved in obsessive thoughts about something that happened or, or fretting about the future and we begin to experience anxiety and that anxiety pushes us to behavior we might not want to be engaging in. And what mindfulness does is to bring us back to make us fully aware of what we're doing and feeling but in a way that uh, doesn't bring a sense of, uh, of anxiety. So you can say that mindfulness is the ability to be fully present, aware of where we are and what we're doing, and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us. And that's why that's helpful when we are dealing with this bombardment of media that we are uh, really not able to escape. I mean, you can turn off... Uh, you know, the TV, you can walk away from screens and computers for a while, but eventually it catches up to you. And unless you're willing to live on a mountaintop, you're going to have to, at some point, deal with it. And in fact, it's a brilliant opportunity to develop this ability that I'm talking about. Uh, you actually miss the ability to uh, deal with these ideas that come at you um, in a way that strengthens you. And, you know, mindfulness practice can be anything. It's not just meditation, although meditation is a wonderful way to do it. Whatever you are doing can be a mindfulness practice, whether you're walking or standing or, or doing your taxes or taking the garbage out or whatever it is can become a mindfulness uh, practice. It's really something we have the ability to do. Um, we just have to use it. Uh, and by using it more and more, it strengthens us and protects us from, uh, from that sense of overwhelm that, that I'm talking about. So, what does that mean in the context of, you know, current affairs, uh, the issues that we are dealing with as a country and as a world? Uh, well, I, I'll give you an example. If you think about an issue, let's take the issue of abortion, which has been... Uh, really front and center for months now, ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And there's uh, a lot of fear and anger and upset on various sides of the spectrum. So there are those that are very concerned 
very overwhelmed by it and the uh, uh, concerned about the access to abortion that uh, this ruling has uh, upended. And there are others who are concerned, uh, upset, overwhelmed by the idea that uh, people can go to other states to access abortion, that it's still available. So whatever side of the spectrum you happen to be on, uh, it can be uh, you know, a button-pushing issue, uh, and it can uh, make you quite uh, anxious and uh, argumentative in many ways. Uh, so in a mindfulness approach to this topic, we become aware of what's happening. We take a look at what has occurred. We take a look at what is going on now, what some states are doing about abortion, what some people are doing about it. And we take a look and become aware of it, but without engaging in um, anxious thoughts. And when we do that, We get a fuller picture of the situation. And from that sense of, of calmness can arise a feeling, a desire um, to do or take a certain action. Not because you're anxious and stressed and mad and and pissed off and but because it just arises organically out of just that awareness and you are moved to take a certain action and you'll know it you'll know that it's coming from that because it won't be uh, an action that is uh, uh, violent uh, or aggressive in any way it will be an action that you become aware of, you know you can take, and you do it and you let it go with total intention towards what it is that you would like to see happen. But after taking the action, you let it go. You just let it go and do its work in the world. That's what I mean. That's the kind of process that I'm talking about. And this helps us in so many ways. You know, in so many ways, besides just healthfully, besides bringing your blood pressure down and your sense of doom and anxiety about the world, it uh, gives us a larger space space to breathe space to understand that the world is not going to end tomorrow even though circumstances may seem to be quite challenging dire even And when we do that, 
what emerges, what happens, is an expansion of, of consciousness. And that expansion of consciousness gives us the ability to solve problems, to be inclusive in that problem solving. And not divisive. It connects us because as our ex consciousness expands, we become more and more aware of our connectedness and our oneness. And one of the things that reminds us of this oneness are large sort of world galvanizing events, events that happen. Uh, too often they're tied to tragic or feelings of tragicness. Uh, the death or passing of a public figure that is maybe beloved by some, maybe not so much by others, but their passing gets everybody's attention. And these figures, their passing reminds us of our connectedness and will bring certain issues that uh, are surrounding either their passing or things that they represented to the fore. And uh, this past week, we had one of those events in the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Her, her passing was attended by uh, a, an astounding amount of media coverage. Uh, not just in you know, Great Britain and England, where you would expect, but here in the States, too. Wall-to-wall uh, -wall coverage of uh, the funeral, the processions, all of the uh, pomp and circumstance that surrounds the traditions uh, that happen when the queen passes and uh, the new monarch is uh, established and the crown is passed on to, in this case, him, King Charles. And as I've said, you know, you can get uh, kind of swept away in the... Um, the sadness or the grief of the event, and that's part of what comes up, is a sense of loss, and that's something people can connect to personally in losing, uh, particularly a parent. People can relate to, to Charles losing his mother and not having her support to lean on. Uh, people can relate to, you know, losing a grandmotherly figure or a grandmother or grandfather uh, who may have been sort of a steady rock in their lives since all of a sudden they're not there. So lots of things galvanize to connect us and recognize our, our oneness in, in this event that we're all uh, experiencing the same kinds of things, whether we are, uh, you know, 
British royalty or just regular folks. But another issue that comes up in contemplating this this loss of this monarch is what she represented. Uh, a kind of era that she personified. And uh, this era was largely an era of colonialism and empire building. But w beginning with her reign, and this will most certainly continue on uh, into her son Charles's reign, is really a reckoning. It's a reckoning of colonial em imperialistic empire building behavior. Uh, and that is something to notice and be aware of because it is part of the time we're living in and the changes that are happening and the transitions that we are going through. Uh, 5,000 years ago, this uh, thought of empire building, of colonialism, uh, began. And by the time that uh, of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, uh, consequences were were being felt and the dissolution of this empire and the change of thinking which is still going on from uh, empire to community is what you know really was kicked off during her reign and as i said will most likely continue so some things to consider when queen elizabeth ascended the throne which was back in 1952 uh, she was responsible for hundreds of millions of colonial subjects in 70 colonies territories uh, and other british uh, ruled areas and demands for their independence were exploding as the economy for the Brits was going downhill the first 30 years of her reign uh, included brutal end of empire conflicts uh, starting with uh, Malaya and then in Kenya, Cyprus, 
Aiden, North Ireland. British forces were moved through the empire and acted in the Queen's name, unleashing wide-scale detentions without trial and illegal deportations. people in Kenya and Malaya were forcibly relocated into barbed wire villages and endured forced labor and starvation as a result of colonial control. Kill squads were deployed and the populations terrorized. And the systemic violence was often uh, denied and uh, sort of passed off as uh, isolated instances of brutality, uh, but not, you know, condoned by the uh, the state, as it were, but just the fault of. Uh, individual officials, uh, bad apples, if you will. But this was not true. Uh, beginning with Winston Churchill, uh, the Queen's ministers not only knew of this sort of violence happening in the empire, they participated in crafting, diffusing, and covering it up routinely. They often lied to Parliament and the media. And when the decolonization was imminent, uh, they often removed and burned in any incriminating evidence. So over three decades, serious and repeated accusations of systemic crimes committed in her name abounded from Cyprus and Northern Ireland uh, and uh, were brought to the European Commission on Human Rights. So the Queen represents and is the guardian of this imperial, rather violent past, this thought of empire, of taking over, if you will, uh, dominating overwhelming and engaging in a suicidal sense of competition and what's happened in response to that has been a desire to break away from the kingdom. So Queen Elizabeth had 32 countries that she ruled over when she took over in 1952. 
And during her time, 17 of those countries broke away. And the British Empire began to dissolve. And as these countries began to demand their independence, the role of Britain's sort of imperial power, uh, which was not given up, <laughs> you know, uh, gracefully at all, but involved quite a bit of that violence I was just detailing. They have been asking for quite some time, particularly Caribbean nations, for apologies and a redress of the really criminal activities that uh, they were subjected to for, for many, many decades. Now recently, uh, I believe it was last year, that uh, the country of Barbados, the island of Barbados, and full disclosure, uh, Barbados is the home of uh, my mother and her ancestors. They successfully removed the queen as their head of state which they had been working on for quite some time. And Charles oversaw that, uh, that uh, decoupling, if you will. And now there are six more Caribbean countries that have uh, the uh, British monarchy as their uh, as their leader and who were colonized they indicated their plans to remove well the queen when she was alive and then now it will be King Charles as their head of state uh, Belize the Bahamas Jamaica Grenada Antigua and Barbuda and St. Kitts and Nevis they were all colonized by the British and though they gained independence from Britain during the second half of the 20th century, during Elizabeth's reign, uh, each country has remained a member of the Commonwealth, <coughs> um, resulting in about 54 British colonies. And there are 14 countries outside of the United Kingdom where the Queen is the head of state, Antigua and Barbuda, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadas and Tuvalu. 
Now, uh, some of these countries, uh, and it's interesting to note that they are um, basically uh, of white European heritage, countries like Canada and Australia, um, don't have any plans to uh, remove the monarchy from uh, their head of state. Uh, but the a lot of these so-called third world countries, countries in Africa and the Caribbean, uh, are calling to remove uh, the the king now as their sovereign. They want the ability to elect their own head of state, independent of an external body, and to oversee domestic and foreign affairs. But. As the monarchy is largely symbolic, although they do have certain controls, uh, the symbolism of removing them is just as powerful. And many are upset that, uh, you know, the British royal family, who has come to visit these countries in, you know, sort of a regal uh, ownership kind of way uh, what they have not taken ownership of are the past wrongs and there's been no commitment from them to formally own up to and acknowledge their family's history of slavery now in March uh, Prince William expressed profound sorrow about slavery saying it should never have happened but he stopped short of apologizing and certainly stopped short of making clear anything that they would be doing to redress the wrongs of the past. So that is some of the feeling that uh, is involved in the Queen's passing. Uh, many of the people in Barbados and, and others of these countries uh, honestly honor the passing of the Queen and, uh, you know, a person has passed away and they're respectful of that but they are not, um, shall we say, they are not effusively uh, mourning her passing. They are instead wondering what the next phase of this will be as King Charles takes over. Uh, for a number of these countries like Jamaica and Grenada, um, removing Charles now would require a constitutional change and that could be a long process. It could take about two to three years for them to become a republic, but considering the years they've spent under the thumb of the UK, it's probably not much in the scheme of things. So, as I've said, oh, I th you know what? I think I, I actually misread some of these statistics. Uh, so, when Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1952, uh, She was, yes, yeah, 70. I'm sorry. I was absolutely correct. 70. And 
that number has dwindled, cut by at least half. And this shows us that we are moving from this sense of uh, empire consciousness to a consciousness of connectedness, to a consciousness of community that uh, ha has been growing, uh, you know, from that time and I believe will certainly continue to grow. How Charles deals with this is going to be very interesting to see. Uh, extricating oneself from 5,000 years of uh, domination, of self-destruction, of uh, warfare, greed, racism, sexism, and suppression uh, is not an easy thing to do. And the extent to which these so-called values, the values of empire thinking and consciousness, have permeated uh, our institutions, our education for young children, our, our companies, our corporations, our day-to-day <coughs> -day transactions, that type of thinking is deeply rooted. And while we see it starting to change, it will be some time before a healthy <laughs> way of, uh, of existing, I think, fully emerges. But we can take heart uh, of the little changes that we begin to see. And as for King Charles, well, the King Charles line um, is fraught, shall we say. Um, Prince Charles is, is now King Charles III. So consider this. Uh, King Charles II, that was the last King Charles they had, uh, was forcibly removed from the throne by Oliver Cromwell and his roundheads as the uh, uh, English uh, uh, people uh, demanded a republic. Uh, now, eventually, he, he was returned to the throne, but um, the, that was the first time in British history <laughs> that a monarch, a city monarch, was tossed out. Um, but, you know, he fared better than his father, Charles I of England, who ruled in the 1600s uh, and was beheaded. <laughs> so, you know, he got to keep his head. Uh, so, given that uh, lineage uh, and the baggage that it uh, entails. Uh, we wish Charles III luck in um, 
continuing to represent this um, dying uh, empire consciousness and hopefully ushering in transitioning into a community uh, a space where the the past and its progenitors can can be healed by reaching out by connecting to apologizing for and redressing the wrongs of the past of the people from which uh, this empire uh, prospered grew rich and wealthy uh, and from which was taken much wealth much uh, human sacrifice and much uh, self-esteem so we can become aware of this process that's happening and how symbolically this transition from Elizabeth as the head of state to King Charles III you know augurs for us a continuing transition into less self-destructive ways of living and thinking and a world of connection and community rather than domination and control and imperialism. It's a long haul, but I think in the end we'll find that we will be the stronger for it, that we will be the more aware and awakened and the better angels of our nature will have greater and greater say in what happens in our world. Just something to think about, to contemplate, uh, as we watch uh, so many things unfold in our world, haven't even mentioned uh, our political turmoil here in the U.S., um, the increasing uh, horror stories that are being revealed uh, about our former president and actions that were taken uh, as we try to put all of that into perspective. Uh, taking that mindfully uh, aware moment, taking that step back and disconnecting those buttons that the media loves to push. Uh, just short-circuiting all of that is the most healthful thing we can do for ourselves and for the world. So, 
until next time we meet, stay healthy, stay mindful, and take that step back. You know you need it. You can do it. You can unwind. You don't have to be tied up in knots, although the world may insist that you must be. Take care and farewell. Till next time.